When a young woman is found dead in the middle of the woods, everyone's a suspect. And then we travel to Mexico to take a look at the story of an alien invader that landed on the outskirts of a village and began killing the men one by one. If you think that's the plot for the movie Predator, you're not alone. But was that hit movie based on a true story? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun out there in the world. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started right away. First off, walking into Dead Rabbit Command. Everyone give it up for our newest Patreon supporter, Matt. Woohoo! Yeah! Walk on in! Come on in, buddy! Come on in to Dead Rabbit Command. Matt, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just help spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. That helps out so much. Now, Matt, I hope that you are ready to fight. You're like, no, dude, I just joined the Patreon. I just like the show. I hope you brought all the weapons you need because we're going to hunt a beast in the second story. You can kind of relax. The first story only involves a horrific murder. Um, hopefully don't bring your gun to that one. You might be a suspect. Matt, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. Drive us all the way out to the Netherlands. <laughs> nice leisurely journey across the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean until we finally arrive in the Netherlands. Specifically, we're headed to the town of Eindhoven. It's October 6th, 1995. I've recently learned I can't say 6th. You know, like the number 6. October 6th, 1995, two days after my birthday. We're going to meet this girl named Nicole Vanderherk. She's 15 years old, and she's had quite a troubled life up to this point. Her mother had committed suicide in April of 1995. So it's just been a couple months dealing with that trauma. And custody of her was given to her stepfather. A man named Jose D.G. And she now had a stepbrother as well due to this marriage. Uh, His name was Andy. So you had Jose D.G. and Andy. The father was 46. Andy was 19. And then you have this 15-year-old girl... Her mother's gone. At this point, she actually seems to be staying with her grandmother. Because on October 6, 1995, or at least she was this night, she left her grandmother's house on her bike. Not the grandma's bike. Nicole's bike. And she rides away. She's headed to go to work, but she never shows up. And that's out of character for Nicole. The work is concerned. Why isn't Nicole here? She also never shows back up at the stepfather's house. She never shows back up at the grandmother's house. She's completely missing. So the police begin a search for this 15-year-old girl. Later that day, by the river Dommel, they find her bicycle. Thirteen days later, October 19th, her backpack is found. It's in another area. It's not near the bicycle. At this point, they 100% not only believe she's missing, but she's at risk. 
So when they find her backpack in another location, the police are like, okay, something really, really bad has happened here. And their suspicions are confirmed a month later, a little over a month later, on November 22nd, 1995, they find her body. Nicole Vanderhurk, 15 years old, she had been raped and murdered, was brutally beaten, and finally stabbed with a fishing or a pocket knife. She was stabbed until she bled out and she passed away. The police really zeroed in on two suspects. Her stepfather, Joe Stee G, and her stepbrother, Andy. The police were looking at other leads. You're trying to figure out where she'd been in the town. Did she have any enemies? Did she have any stalkers? But they really zeroed in on her family members. This is 1995, and the fact that she was raped gives the authorities a little bit of DNA evidence. But in 1995, the technology is not there to really zero in on who it could be. The interesting thing about DNA evidence is to analyze it, you must destroy it. So you pretty much have one shot with a lot of this stuff. And if you're looking at this and you go, the technology is not here to 100% or even 90% point us in the direction we have at least these two main suspects. There were other people that they thought, well, it could be this person, but their two main suspects was the stepbrother and the stepfather. Both of them are arrested. Both of them are interrogated. Both of them have... Full investigations done on them. The police are looking for evidence. Both of them end up being released. The police cannot prove it's the stepbrother or the stepfather, but those are really, at this point in the investigation, they've kind of ruled out everyone else. They've talked to the people in the town, all of that. They know it's one of these two people. The question is, who is it? A few months after the murder a family friend, is arrested for drug trafficking. And she says, while she's being investigated for that, she goes, I know who killed Nicole. And she pointed out this guy, it was a guy that wasn't even on the police radar, that he was the one who killed Nicole. He knew a lot about the murder. He seemed to know a little too much about the murder and that he had done it. But when the police investigated him, they could find absolutely no evidence that leads him in any way, shape, or form to the murder of Nicole. But now that that allegation had been out there, people in town started to think, well, maybe it's not one of these two people. And Joss D.G., at this point, you know, he, he wants justice for his stepdaughter. He really wants justice. So he says, I really think it's this guy. I think it's this guy that this woman... He's obviously a criminal. He's working for this drug trafficking network. She says that he did it. He probably did it. And he tries to get the police to double down their efforts to look into that guy. Because you want justice for your stepdaughter. You understand that she's not of your blood, but she's still of your family. But the police just kind of... They don't have any evidence to go off of. Just have this statement. They've done this full investigation. And the stepfather understands that you need evidence. So unless somebody confesses, or there's some sort of huge breakthrough, her murder will most likely go unsolved. Fast forward to the year 2004. At this point, the case has completely gone cold. The police have no leads. 
They do not know who killed Nicole. When she had died, there was a thousand people who attended her funeral. The entire community mourned for the murder of this young girl, and yet she still has not found justice. Fast forward again to the year 2011. Her stepbrother, Andy, is now 36 years old, and he's living in England. And he posts a very curious statement on his Facebook page. He wrote, quote, I will be arrested today for the murder of my sister. I confessed. We'll get in contact soon. Unquote. Imagine if you saw any of your Facebook friends post that. Plus, he was living in England. How many people even knew about his sister? He'd completely left. Andy wasn't connected to this anymore. He's got a fresh start. And here he is in 2011. He confesses. He is the one who raped and murdered his sister. That's not something you want to wake up to on your Facebook feed. March 8th, 2011, he is arrested. He actually is arrested. He's sent back to the Netherlands. And the police began to interrogate him. Absolutely bizarre. He confessed to the crime. But the police do not have enough to hold him. There was a judge who ordered him let go. You have no, you don't have enough information. They're like, he confessed. What other information do we need? He was one of our main suspects, and he's confessed to it. And the judge ruled, listen, if you think he did it, it's the year 2011. Let's exhume Nicole's body. Because now we have the DNA technology. We know that she was raped. We have the DNA technology to test test the DNA. He doesn't want to get gross about it. He's like, I don't really want to say what we're testing. But we know that she was sexually assaulted. So we can then test the DNA, but we have to exhume the body to get it. Then, then we'll know for sure. He's confessing, but I'm saying there's not enough evidence to hold him. Let him go. He was released five days later. And the police are like, okay. Let's exhume the body. September 2011, they exhumed the body of Nicole. And there is a single sample of sperm that they have to test. It's a very, very small amount. And they're going to destroy it at this point. But they have a confession. Now they just need proof. So they test the DNA. And there are three different individuals in this DNA sample. Her boyfriend, who you would expect, right? She was having sex with her boyfriend. You would get a sample of that. An unknown individual. They could never match who that was. And her stepfather. This is absolutely insane. Andy knew. He knew that his dad killed Nicole. He knew it. No one would listen to him. He was also a suspect. So in 2011, this is the balls on this kid. I, this could have gone sideways. He planned this. This could have gone sideways in so many different ways. In 2011, he said, I'm going to confess to the rape and murder of my stepsister, knowing 
that they will exhume her body, test the DNA, and find out it was my dad. That's a gambit. That is 100%. You are really counting on the system working. And he said, he goes 100%. This was a quote that he left. He goes, quote, I wanted to get her exhumed and the DNA off her. So I kind of set myself up. And it could have gone horribly wrong. To get her exhumed, I had to put steps in place to get her exhumed. I went to the police and said I did it. And they wanted to convict him, so they got her body and found out it was the stepfather. So, in the Netherlands, there's rules against naming suspects. You can't name suspects of crimes. So they still, at this point, are calling him Jost DG. That's not his full name. Dost DG, we find out now, the police knew this stuff, after he has been publicly arrested... He had three previous charges of rape. He had raped three separate women over the years. So, I mean, that's something the police should have completely zeroed in on. And his defense is, well, what about that unknown individual? He must have been the one to kill her. Because you have the boyfriend, you can explain that away, but who's the unknown individual? So it wasn't me, it was the unknown individual. The police go, listen, she was 15 and you were her stepfather. So that's a crime. Even if we can't get the murder on you, even if it was this unknown individual, you committed you committed several crimes. He tried to say it was consensual, that him and his stepdaughter were having consensual sex. And again, the police are like, that's not how, that's not how it works. She's 15. She was your stepdaughter. Your DNA is inside of her. You can't wiggle away from that. And because of just the way the justice system is, sometimes you have to charge less. This was most likely a first-degree murder. He ends up not getting charged necessarily with murder. What happens is he is found guilty of rape, which he 100% did. Simply because of the age difference. He was found guilty of rape and he was found guilty of manslaughter. So you could argue like maybe it was a crime of passion. He did commit the rape and then he didn't mean to kill her. But again, if you think about it, she was beaten pretty badly and she was stabbed. But for whatever reason, they, they didn't say it was first degree or second degree. They said it was rape and manslaughter. And for this crime, Jose was sentenced to only 12 years in prison. He did less years in prison than she spent alive. He did 12 years in prison, and then he just kind of... Well, actually, if this happened in September 2011, I was going to say he's out now. It's probably really close. See, since we don't have his full real name, it's hard to do any follow-up information on it. The reason why they don't reveal the names of suspects, because what if they're innocent? That's what the logic is. Well, he was found guilty, and still, if you read articles about this, because I kept trying to figure out if his last name was Vander Herc, or if that was another name of, like, the child's birth father. I, I could never be for sure on that, but Joe Stee-G... Let's say the trial started in 2011, or that's when he got arrested, 2011, September. So let's say that he was found guilty in 2012. He was sentenced to 12 years. 
at the very latest, if he didn't get paroled early, he gets out next year. Remember, three previous rape charges. Then his stepdaughter goes missing, raped and murdered. Manslaughter, it's not that. He murdered her, raped and murdered. He'll get out of prison next year. And, I mean, just what a... that 100%, we all know, it doesn't matter what country you're in, the justice system can go horribly wrong. There is an other version of this story where Andy confesses, and they don't exhume the body. And the judge doesn't let him out, and he's just arrested. And then he could plead all he wants. He's innocent, he's innocent, but prisons are full of innocent people. There's not a person in prison who will ever admit they're guilty. They're all innocent, according to them. So the police have heard it all. That is insane. But he knew. He knew that it wasn't him. He knew it was his dad all along. Crazy, crazy true crime story. This is one of those stories that I originally was just going to tell in a minute for my TikTok channel. And the more I looked into it, I, I just I, I have to admire the guts of this kid because I don't think I could have done that. And again... It could have gone wrong. They could have tried, they could have exhumed the body, tried to test the DNA, and it not work still. And the police go, you confessed. Like, that's really all we need. We don't know why they let you go after five days. You confess. I mean, there's a hundred things that could have gone wrong. And you know what's sad about it, too, is that everything went right, and that stepdad still gets out of prison next year. If he's not out already, if he wasn't paroled early, which we see in a ton of countries do that. The very latest he's walking out of that prison next year. Absolutely insane. And what a gutsy, gutsy move on Andy's part. Matt, let's go ahead and say goodbye to the Netherlands. And we're doing a little salute to Andy. I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the world-famous Carpenter Copter. We're headed out of the Netherlands. Fly us all the way out to Mexico. <laughs> Matt, land this carpenter copter here in Mexico. Specifically, we're headed out to a village near Ocosingo. Ocosingo, Mexico. And we're going back in time. So take off all your modern clothes. Wear some old-timey clothes. Keep, keep your modern-day firearms. We're going to need them. There's no reason for us to walk around with muskets. This is early 19th century. That's how far back we are in Mexico. And this story has been passed along generation to generation to the point now that it's left the oral tradition and it's being published online. There was an account written up. The guy who wrote it up says, I was told this story by my father who was told it by his father and so on and so forth. It goes back a bit to the 19th century. And this village... It was not the easiest life, but it wasn't the hardest either. Everyone had what they needed. You had a lot of farms that were self-sufficient farms. So you had your chickens, you had your crops, you had your family to help work the farm. Maybe you'd make a little bit over what you would consume yourself, you and your family. You could sell that, but for the most part, you just made it work. And this bloodline, this family bloodline going all the way back, we're going to go in and call this guy Mike who's working this farm with his family, he goes, listen, we didn't have a lot of the luxuries, but we didn't need them. We had each other. We had a good farm. We had a good piece of land and a good community. 
Like, really, what more could you ask for? One night, there's a commotion in the village. The villagers look up and there's a bright light ripping across the horizon. That seems to crash in a nearby forest. Now, this is 19th century. People haven't even begun flying planes at this point. The idea, I mean, you in an area like that, which was everywhere back then, where you had no light pollution, you would see shooting stars. You would see celestial movement. But a bright light shooting across the horizon, you wouldn't even know what a rocket was or what an airplane was. That shouldn't be there. That should not be flying around. And it definitely shouldn't be crashing nearby. Everyone's super curious about what that could have been. But they're also pretty smart. They go, let's go check tomorrow morning. Let's not tromp off in the middle of the darkness into this forest, into this 19th century forest, which is probably full of wild animals. None of it's been tamed. We'll wait till tomorrow because whatever crashed out there is not going anywhere. So they do. They wait till tomorrow and the next day a search party leaves the village and heads out to where this thing would have crashed. They search the entire area. They don't find anything. So they come back. You know, people were obviously really scared about this. Whether or not you were scientific-minded or superstitious-minded, something that shouldn't happen. The night sky lit up and you saw something arc across the sky and then crash. To be fair, I know I made an explosion sound effect. It doesn't specifically say there was like a fireball, but they figured that it crashed. It was coming down at such a velocity. Everything you'd ever seen streak across the sky crashed somewhere. Like a meteorite or something like that. So they go out there, they search, they come back, they see, we haven't found anything, and that actually puts everyone at ease. Whether it was an omen or it was some sort of massive meteorite, whatever, like if there's nothing out there, I don't have to worry about it. There's kind of a logic there, but obviously we're talking about this on a paranormal podcast. Things are about to get weird. A short time afterwards, we don't know if this was a couple days or a couple weeks, but a short time after that, this rancher loses one of his steer. Bessie, where are you, Bessie? Bessie, ah, man, I see these other cows here, but where's Bessie? Uh, Margaret, I'm gonna have to go and get that old Bessie again. She must have wandered off. Okay, honey, but be back in time for supper. And I forgot what I named this guy. Bessie's owner decides to head out to find his cow. He never comes back home. People can't figure it out. I mean, again, there's wild animals. This is untamed land. This guy went out looking for his cow. Hasn't come back home. Search party is organized. They begin looking all over the area. They can't find Bessie's owner. They can't find Bessie either, but they're not really worried about the cow at this point. They can't find Bessie's owner. They keep looking around. After two days of searching the area, the search party stumbles across his body. They said he had been ripped open from neck to waist. 
and he had no internal organs. They had all been removed. Now, I'm sure they told the townspeople that they had found this fellow, but I, they probably left out the most gruesome detail, right? He was most likely attacked by a wild animal. But even, even the experienced hunters in the area, the, you know, when you're living that... When you're living on the land like that, you get to know what animals do. Um, they couldn't think of an animal that was local that would rip a human open. That, that would be unusual to begin with, right? But not impossible that a wild animal would kill someone. But to only eat its internal organs. They thought that was odd. They left those delicious eyeballs intact. A few weeks after that... When another man goes missing from the village, the search party, you know, they're going to go out and they're going to look for him. They're hoping, they're hoping that maybe he just fell down a ravine or was trampled by, or was crushed by a log, a falling tree or something like that. They were hoping for that. But in the back of their minds, you know, the search party was like, I really hope, I really hope I don't find this guy with no internal organs. But sure enough, after a two-day search, he goes missing, and two days later, they find this man. He's ripped open. All of his internal organs are gone. Now, this village was so small, and it had such a almost non-existent crime problem. The person who wrote this up said, like, a chicken would get stolen every once in a while. They didn't have a police force. You wouldn't need a police force for a community that small, that homogenous. Everyone knew each other. When a chicken got stolen, you're like, it's probably it's probably Charlie the chicken thief. I don't know why his mom named him that. But you knew everybody. When it, something happened, you knew how to take care of it. But now they have two people who have been murdered. That's the only way that they can think of this. There's not an animal that's going to rip a human open and just eat the organs. And it was also interesting, they were kind of thinking, it's interesting, it always takes us two days to find the body. Is it possible that something is killing them and then taking the time to eat the organs and then leaving the body in a place we would find it? Like, that's also another thought. Like, this isn't, even if there was an animal that ate just the innards of a human, why would we always find the body on the second day? So they call it, they have to call in the police force from the nearby city of Okosingo. They have to say, hey, listen, um, we're really good on keeping up on our chicken thieves, but we think something is, well, well we know it's not, it's not a conspiracy theory. Something is killing the people in this village. We can't figure out who's doing it or what's doing it. And the local police force, they know who's doing it, right? The actual trained cops, they go. It's a wild animal attack. They know that before they even go out there. They go from what you described to us. It's a wild animal attack. But tell you what. We'll go kind of look around a bit. Uh, we'll tip over some rocks. See what we can find. And apparently the police came out. And they ended up looking at the bodies and go. These are obvious animal attacks. Despite that you think that there's no animal that would rip a human open like this. And eat the organs. That's the only thing it could be. In the 19th century, even, the idea of a serial killer was so unknowable, right? You, you didn't have that epidemic of people just killing. People killed to steal. 
and people kill to cover up crimes and people just killing for the sake of killing. This was almost completely unknown around the world in the 19th century. It became a little more, it became less common towards the end of the 19th century. But again, it was not a, the term serial killer wasn't coined until the 1960s. So the police aren't thinking it's a weirdo. The villagers, I don't know if at this point they're connecting it to the fiery ball across the sky, because how could you? Why would you even connect those two things? You wouldn't think immediately, well, that's weird. A couple months ago, we had that weird thing that seemed to crash in the forest, and now two people have been gutted open. But they see shooting stars all the time. This Sure, this was a bit brighter and a bit closer and it crashed nearby. But would you think it must have been that rock that came down from the sky? No, Nobody's thinking that. Yet. After the police leave, after they kind of kick around the forest a bit and check these bodies out and the police leave, one week later, another man goes missing and then they didn't say how long the search took for this guy, but another man goes missing, and when he is finally found, he's decapitated, which is new. That's a novel thing. He's decapitated, he's shredded open, all of his organs are gone. So at this point, people are, people are very, very concerned. They know it's not a wild animal. Something's in the forest. And the local clairvoyant, kind of like the old woman who lives there, not in a shoe, probably in a normal house, but has powers of perception beyond that of normal men. She's actually, they probably should have talked to her a little earlier, honestly, but the main reason why they're talking to the clairvoyant now is there has been a kill team assembled. They're no longer going to go around looking for bodies. They're going to find out what this is and kill it. So you had five men, they said, we're going to sweep the entire area. We're basically going to grit it and search the entire force until we find out what's doing this, we're going to set up a kill team because we're tired of just losing people one by one. We, there's no schedule to it. Who knows who the next victim is going to be? Who knows when? So we're going to take the battle of this thing. And so that is why the clairvoyant is consulted because they want to know what they're up against. And apparently the clairvoyant tells these five men, what you are looking for, what you are hunting, is neither man nor beast. It is something entirely different. And she actually volunteers to join the hunt. This woman goes, I want to go with you because it's possible that I will be able to protect you against this thing. <laughs> okay, but this must be the ballsy episode, right? This thing's already killed multiple people, ripped them open. And this woman, they don't say how old she is. But I mean, back then, 38 was pretty old. But she goes, I'm going to go with you guys into the forest. It's possible that I can protect you in some way. Maybe I can help actually spot this creature. She, she believes that this is not a normal entity. And her granddaughter wants to go with them too. Now, again, I think that this is like an older clairvoyant. I think her granddaughter, I don't think it's a nine-year-old. I don't think she's on this bloody mission. Let's say the granddaughter is 19 and this woman would be in her 60s. They all go off. They join this five-man squad and they head off into the forest. And on the first day, they're not really finding anything. <laughs> they found some weird tracks, but not much else. They can't say that these tracks actually come from whatever this thing is. They're not leading them in any particular direction. 
The Kill Squad's just kind of moving through the forest with this lady and her granddaughter. And finally, they're like, okay, listen, let's take a break. <laughs> Maybe walking into the forest to kill this murderer is a little too much for one day, especially too much for the women. The guy says as he's rubbing his calves, he's like, oh, this hurts so bad, this hurts so bad. I'm thinking of the women. Let's all sit down to rest so I can rest my little doggies, put them in the hot water, and rest them up. They're like, wait, are you trying to take a spa bath? I thought we were just going to camp here for a second. He's like, wait, forget that last part. I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. Let's just rest for a little bit. So as this group of seven people are resting in the middle of this forest, suddenly they hear the sound of something moving incredibly quickly through the woods towards them. Faster than a man could run, faster than a beast could... Uh, what, do be, what do animals do when they run super... Gallop? I don't know. Maybe just run, maybe just run. I never heard about a cheetah galloping before. Anyways... Faster than man or beast, something is moving through the woods right towards them. And once it gets near them, the kill squad starts to hear this thing running circles around their camp. This isn't like late night. This is like middle of the day. They wanted to take a break. And even though it's the middle of the day, you have these five men with their weapons ready to go. The clairvoyant and her granddaughter huddling there. This creature is running loops around the camp. And then it steps out. It steps out of the cover of the trees and is now standing in front of this group. The clairvoyant was right. This is no man. This is no animal. What they see is described as a tall creature covered in grayish scales. It had huge teeth. I'm assuming sharp. It was just like huge donkey teeth. Not super spooky. It doesn't have to be super spooky. It's a giant monster coming out of the woods. I was like, what? He's not dripping blood. That's not scary enough. I imagine if someone said, I saw a monster and he had large teeth. It wasn't like fake hee-haw teeth. Like some, like hillbilly teeth. I'm imagining they're sharp, but maybe not. Tall creature <laughs> making him super spooky. And he had Annabelle, the killer doll, with him. A tall creature walks out of the woods. He's entire body's covered in grayish scales huge maybe sharp teeth definitely sharp claws that is part of the description and red eyes and he's standing there in the woods or he's not in the woods like he stepped out into this clearing the five men have their weapons ready on him to take down this creature and in an instant this creature completely disassembles this entire kill squad. It moves from man to man, ripping them open. They can't, the, the hunters cannot even get their bearing. This creature moves from one, slits them open from belly to waist, and as that guy's trying to hold in his guts, this creature's already on the next guy, slicing them open with these razor-sharp claws. Within an instant, all five men are on the ground, dead or dying. The creature then looks over and sees the two women, Clairvoyant and her granddaughter, and rushes towards them, ready to strike, when all of a sudden he stops. 
And he looks the women up and down a few times. And then runs off into the woods. Now, if you think that's the plot, if you think that's the plot of Predator, <laughs> it is, okay? It is. But we're not done with the story. We're not done with the story. This, this next part I like to call Predator 2. No, it is very reminiscent of Predator. And it's interesting because I read the story and I go, I wonder how much of Predator, assuming the story's true, like if this was passed down from family to family. And and so th- let, let me get back to the story. This is super interesting. So the two women went back. The granddaughter and the clairvoyant, they just left the bodies there because I mean, what are they going to do? They're dead. They're dead. These men are dead. They go back to the village and they tell the villagers what they saw. They said, it's this giant creature with, he's huge. And we were like, were the teeth goofy looking? She's like, no, he, this creature was ripping people apart. I, they weren't goofy he-haw teeth. What do you think? I, I don't know if I had to say they were razor sharp. It was eating people's organs. Anyways, the clairvoyant and the granddaughter come back to the village. At this point, everything's been confirmed. This isn't accidental. Something is hunting them. Something is killing them, and it's not human. And remember, this story was passed down through this family line. The guy who wrote this story said, my grandfather's grandfather was in the village. Well, he was always in the village because that's where he lived and that's where he worked. But he goes, my grandfather's grandfather saw the five bodies. Because what happened was people had to go back and retrieve those bodies. They weren't going to leave them there. So the guy who wrote the story, he said, my grandfather's grandfather saw the five bodies just completely cut open. And they were brought back. They were from this team that were sent to hunt this creature down. And it just completely ripped them to pieces. Literally ripped them to pieces. The clairvoyant who saw this creature started calling him El Diablo, which is pretty fitting, right? The devil. This thing was 100% not from planet Earth. But the villagers had another name for him. El Cazador de Hombres. Or the hunter of men. Or, or predator, right? <laughs> or predator. I think that's a dope name. El Cazador de Hombres. That's going to be my uh, wrestling name. this point, they contact the police again and go, Hey, remember that whole thing you said? It was just wild animal. These attacks were random. Not to worry too much about it. Yeah, uh, five of our best hunters have been eviscerated. And we have two witnesses saying it's a monster in the woods. So the police actually went out there. Oh, actually, looking at my notes, they called the police and said, we got two witnesses, and the police were the ones who retrieved the body. Because I was thinking that would be a little policy. You're like, what? Those five guys just got killed in the middle of the woods by that monster? I'll go out and retrieve the bodies. It was a full police force. They went out there and brought the bodies of the five guys back. There's There's no state of like how long it took for them to go in there if the men still had their organs. But when the police brought the bodies of the five hunters back into the village, that's when the author's grandfather's grandfather saw the bodies. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, that's going to leave a mark on you. You're going to remember that. And you're going to tell your kids the day you saw those five people ripped open. After the five bodies are brought back, after the police realize the situation is way out of their control, Two weeks after this massacre, two weeks after the police show up and retrieve the bodies, two weeks 
after this creature finally... Well, they know it's a creature now. They kind of know what it is. And it's finally given a name, El Cazador de Hombres. Two weeks after all of that, another villager goes missing and is found ripped open. One, you would think you would stop going into the forest at a certain point, but remember, this thing's like, did it take the cow? Was it running into the village and stealing that cow in the first place? And the other guy just happened to be brutally mauled by this, looking for the cow. You would start to think, like, is it something that if we avoid the forest, we don't have to worry about this thing? But this last one, and actually I think even the second uh, victim, it doesn't necessarily say they're out in the forest. They're finding the bodies in the forest. But this thing seems to be coming into the village. It doesn't seem to be safe anywhere. And we know for a fact, we don't know where some of these attacks took place, but we know for a fact where one of them took place. And this really just let people know nowhere is safe. Uh, One month after that last villager was ripped open, there was a wagon traveling to the city of Okosingo. There's a man and a woman on a wagon traveling down a road. The road road was quite close to the forest. But at this point, basically this creature is shutting down your entire infrastructure. You can't even leave the village. There's this wagon going down this road. The creature leaps out of the forest and in, in a single motion, grabs the man, throws him off the wagon, and rips him open. At that point, the wagon has come to a stop. The woman's absolutely terrified. She's still sitting up there. And after this creature has killed the man, it turns, it looks at the woman, looks her up and down, just like he had done with the previous two women that he had come across. This creature looks her up and down, takes off into the forest. After that last attack, the creature was never seen again. There were no more murders, no more disappearances. It was as if everything returned to normal. Super fascinating story. Again, a lot of it does read like someone was someone was making a prequel to Predator. But at the same time, like you have to ask, well, first off, is the story real? Let's just assume that it is. We're paranormal podcast. It could be made up. It could totally be made up, but whatever. I read about it on phantomsandmonsters.com, which is a phenomenal. They publish more stuff than I could ever cover on this podcast. If you really like hearing about cryptids and mysterious, I check out Phantoms and Monsters every single day, and I encourage you guys to do that as well. It's a really, really cool website. It's been around for a long time. Great stuff on there. For centuries, probably even longer, the idea of a bright, shining light spreading across the night sky was an omen of bad luck. It was a sign that a certain military campaign shouldn't be waged that day. Or a regal decision should be set aside because the omen said it was a bad idea. These signs in the sky have long determined, in many ways, the history of humanity. But as we moved farther in time, these became superstitions. The lights in the sky, the bizarre things that are seen in the cosmos. 
we're a scientific world. We don't have to worry about superstitions. We don't have to worry about omens. But in this case, the bad omen turned out to be true. The mysterious light that streaked across the horizon wasn't just a meteor, wasn't just a comet, wasn't just a pretty thing to look up and see and then go back to bed. This was beyond a bad omen. This was beyond a warning from the gods. This heralded the arrival of the hunter of men. And through blood and fear, he would earn that name. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.